When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Of all the many mysteries of life, I think we can all agree that there is no greater question than of what comes next. Is there some ethereal afterlife waiting for us after death? Or are we just snuffed out like candles, leaving our bodies to decompose into Earth? Countless scientists, philosophers, artists, poets, and theologians alike have all pondered this most imponderable of questions, and so far no one has ever come up with a definitive answer. Likewise, one related question that springs forth out of the belief that the soul lives on after death is whether or not the spirit sometimes remains here on earth. Or in short, are ghosts real? Ghost stories are as old as human civilization. We can find examples of them that date back to our earliest literature. In ancient Rome, the writer Pliny the Younger once wrote about the ghost of an old man that haunted a formerly vacant house that was now being rented by the philosopher Athenodorus. On his first night in the house, the ghost appeared to Athenodorus in his study. The old man's spirit looked emaciated, and his wrists and ankles were shackled by chains that rattled eerily as he led the philosopher out of the house and into the yard before vanishing. The following morning, Athenodorus felt compelled to dig up the spot where the old man's ghost had vanished only to discover the remains of a skeleton in chains. Athenodorus reburied the remains, giving him a proper funeral this time, and afterwards, the ghost never appeared to him again. As far as ghost stories go, this story told by Pliny the Younger is pretty standard fare. The tale of the ghost that tries to inform you where to find his remains is one that has been told and retold many times. When you get down to it, there are basically two kinds of ghost stories. The story where the ghost is trying to scare you, and the story where the ghost is trying to tell you something really important. A lot of times those two stories cross over, but not always. At least in the latter version, we can find some measure of comfort in such spooky tales. Ghost stories, after all, bridge the gap between the past and present, and serve to help us cope with the loss of our loved ones. Because that means if the spirits of the deceased remain here with us, then they're never truly forgotten either. But whether there is any such validity to these stories remains up to debate. Just as hardcore skeptics will never be convinced that ghosts are real, the same goes for hardcore believers who will never be dissuaded. As the English poet and essayist Samuel Johnson once said about the paranormal, all argument is against it, but all belief is for it. One thing is for certain, ghost stories are practically inescapable. You can travel to any corner of the globe where people have lived, and likely you'll be able to find at least one legend of spirits that haunt the living. A recent poll found that 45% of Americans say they believe in ghosts, and roughly 30% say they've experienced a ghost firsthand. In the United States alone, we have stories of haunted bars, haunted toy stores, haunted cars, haunted office buildings, 
And of course, that most quintessential of all haunted places, the haunted house. The idea that our homes can be haunted just seems like a natural progression. We construct these places to protect us, and we spend our entire lives inside them. Within these walls lie our most intimate secrets, our most vulnerable moments. Our homes outlast us, and they carry with them the histories of all those who occupied the space before us. We imbue our homes with aspects of our personalities. We decorate to our tastes. We describe them in human terms, talking about a house's personality. We even give them names sometimes. People are sometimes born in these homes. And sometimes, people die in them as well. With so much of ourselves invested in these personal spaces, is it any wonder, then, that stories persist of our spirits living on in them after we're dead? In 1848, three sisters from upstate New York, Leah, Kate, and Maggie Fox, began telling their mother stories that they were able to communicate with the spirits. Word spread quickly about what the girls claimed to be able to do, and it's from them that the American spiritualist movement was born. Seemingly overnight, thousands of self-proclaimed mediums sprung up and began charging people money for the chance to communicate with their deceased loved ones. It hardly mattered that late in life some of the Fox sisters tried telling everyone they'd made the whole thing up. By then, the spiritualism movement was thriving, and it didn't seem like anything could bring it to an end. In the days following the Civil War, there was a huge appetite among people to remain in contact with their dearly departed. That's why back before Netflix and Facebook, seances became a common way for people to pass the time. But of course not everyone was so easily convinced. Along with all the true believers in the spiritualist movement, so too did a number of rational thinkers begin appearing who dedicated their lives to debunking the paranormal. In fact, probably the most famous debunker in American history was also its most famous magician, the legendary Harry Houdini. In the 1920s, following the death of his mother, Houdini made a second career for himself out of debunking psychics and mediums. Houdini started out in a sincere attempt to contact the spirit of his mother, whom he dearly loved, and whose death affected him greatly. But after every medium he met turned out to be a fraud, he then made it his new mission in life to become a crusader against all supernatural phenomena. Houdini traveled to seances all across the country, proving on every occasion that the so-called mediums were nothing but a bunch of two-bit hustlers with a bag of cheap tricks. But of all the places Houdini visited, there was one in particular that defied even him. It was a supposedly haunted house nestled in San Jose, California, with a legend behind it that contained as many twists and turns as the home's seemingly endless corridors did. After Houdini held a seance inside this house, he walked away from the experience a changed man. He never became a true believer in the paranormal. Yet this house in particular impressed him enough to leave him unable to fully discount the possibility that something supernatural lived within its many walls. It was Houdini that gave the place the name that is stuck until this day, the Winchester Mystery House. And some people believe it may be the most haunted house in the world. I'm Nate Hale, and I ain't afraid of no ghosts. And this is The Conspirators. The Winchester House is famous for being a sprawling labyrinth of twisting hallways and stairways that go nowhere. 
It is perhaps the most famous haunted house in America. Save except for a particular house on Amityville, Long Island that spawned the book and film series The Amityville Horror. The Winchester House is one that is so steeped in its own legends that it can sometimes be difficult to determine what is real and what is not about it. It sits in the middle of the sprawling suburb of San Jose, California, near San Francisco. Much like the surrounding cities of Santa Clara and Cupertino, San Jose is another example of urban sprawl at its best and worst. It's an endless sea of shopping malls and urban parks. And there, just off Interstate 280, standing next to a movie theater megaplex and across the street from a couple shopping malls, stands this bizarre, sprawling Victorian mansion that seems both out of place and time. Some paranormal investigators have described the Winchester Mansion in such grandiose terms as being the most haunted house in the world. It has inspired numerous movies, comic books, TV shows, and plenty of horror novels as well. Shirley Jackson briefly mentions the Winchester House in her most famous book, The Haunting of Hill House. Stephen King has cited the Winchester House as the inspiration for some of his own ghost stories, after reading about it when he was a boy. In fact, King even wrote a TV miniseries about a similar enormous haunted house called Rose Red. Even Walt Disney is said to have been inspired in the design of Disneyland's haunted mansion by the Winchester House. So what is it about this place that has drawn so much fear and superstition? At its core is a spooky legend about a wealthy old woman named Sarah Winchester, heir to a firearms fortune, who is supposed to have begun building the mansion as a way to stave away the ghosts of those who died by the guns that made her rich. So the legend goes that following the death of Sarah Winchester's daughter and husband, she visited a psychic named Adam Coons, who warned her during a seance that her family was being haunted by the spirits of all those who had been killed by the gun that won the West and that the only way to keep the spirits at bay would be for her to keep building a house that would never be finished. The house itself is a confounding mishmash of twisting corridors, inaccessible rooms, doors that go nowhere, and even a staircase that ascends half a flight of stairs, then makes a 90-degree turn before stopping abruptly into a wall. If we are to believe the legend, then the nonsensical construction was all a way to confound the ghosts, who stopped at nothing to pursue the Harris. Stories tell of nightly seances that Sarah Winchester held in a blue room in the center of the house from midnight to 2 a.m. When Winchester would get messages from the ghost instructing her on what to build next. Construction workers built the house 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, for 38 years. Then when Sarah died in 1922, all work immediately ceased, leaving rooms unfinished and nails half-driven into walls. But that's only part of the story. She was born Sarah Lockwood Pardee in 1839 in New Haven, Connecticut, to an upper-middle-class family. Although we know her today as Sarah, she was actually known throughout much of her life as Sally, after her maternal grandmother. Sarah's father was a woodworker by trade, and he made a name for himself as an expert craftsman of ornamental flourishes for the style of Victorian architecture of the day. By the time Sarah was eight years old, her father's business was taking off, and soon she had gone from a rather modest upbringing to becoming one of the upwardly mobile socialites that filled the neighborhood. One of her neighbors in New Haven was Oliver Winchester, who had made his own fortune through a combination of his business skills and mechanical aptitude. 
Within a few years, he had made himself wealthy by founding the Winchester and Davies Shirt Manufacturing Company with his partner, John Davies. Sarah was the third youngest among six children, all but one of them girls. In keeping with the times, her father, Leonard Pardee, was eager to marry his daughters off to other members of the wealthy New Haven Society. In 1862, Sarah married Oliver Winchester's son, William Wirt Winchester. It was a simple ceremony. Because it was generally decided between the two upper-crust families that during this time of the Civil War, that an ostentatious ceremony would be unseemly. Although if you were comparing checkbooks, the Winchesters were much more wealthy than the Pardees, it still seemed like the proverbial match made in heaven for the pair. They were young and very much in love, and that's all that either set of parents cared about. Besides, Sarah could more than hold her own among her new husband's social circles. She was brilliant and well-educated, and she spoke fluent French. At society functions, she stood out like a shining star among the social climbers. Most members of the parties and the Winchesters managed to remain out of the war, both families being wealthy enough to be able to afford the $300 it cost to buy a deferment. Sarah's brother did enlist out of a sense of patriotism and served in the Battle of Bull Run, as did Sarah's brother-in-law, Homer Sprague. Oliver Winchester wanted his family to be more involved in the war effort, though. So in 1857, he bought the failing Volcanic Repeating Arms Company from Horace Smith and Daniel Wesson, a couple of weapons designers who had come up with a design for a revolutionary rifle that was able to hold 16 rounds and could fire multiple shots without the cumbersome and awkward reloading that plagued most rifles of the era. Smith and Wesson would, of course, go on to found another very successful arms company bearing their names. Winchester believed that a functioning repeating rifle could change the entire course of the war. But although Smith & Wesson's design worked on paper, it still had some design flaws that kept it from working in practice. Winchester took his most trusted mechanic, Benjamin T. Henry, from his shirt factory and put him to work refining Smith & Wesson's design. But despite the distinct advantage this new repeating rifle, which earned the nickname the Henry, had over its competitors, the U.S. Army was slow to adopt it. By the end of the Civil War, only 1% of all the rifles used in battle were Henry's. But the soldiers who did use the rifle prized it above all others. Some of them bought the rifles out of their own pockets, believing that owning one could be the difference between life and death for them. While all this was going on, William Winchester remained working as the secretary for the Winchester and Davies Shirt Manufacturing Company. He saw his father's weapons business as an interesting sideline, one which he dabbled in from time to time. He and Sarah lived a comfortable life together, and on June 15, 1866, the couple welcomed a daughter they named Annie into the world. But right away after Annie's birth, it became apparent that something was wrong. Doctors diagnosed the infant with a condition called marasmus, a deficiency that didn't allow her body to process calories or manufacture its own protein. Over the next month, the Winchesters were forced to watch their infant daughter slowly starve to death. On July 25th, baby Annie died, leaving the parents devastated. Sarah fell into a deep depression, and by all accounts, her daughter's death left an impression on her that changed her forever. William Winchester went back to work for the shirt company, but in the meantime, Oliver Winchester's rifle manufacturing business was taking off. 
He managed to secure a major post-war contract with the French military that forced the U.S. Army to take a second look at his repeating rifle in order to keep up. The Winchester Company began marketing the rifle as the best weapon for self-defense on the western frontier. They continued to modify the rifle, and in order to stamp his own name on the gun, Oliver Winchester took some rather extreme measures, shall we say, to wrestle the patent away from his employee Henry. In time, the Winchester rifle would gain a reputation as the gun that won the West. It would become synonymous with America's westward expansion and for winning the war with the Indians. Sarah and William continued to live in New Haven until the early 1880s, during which time several other deaths occurred, which helped steer Sarah in the direction her life took later on. In early 1880, Sarah's mother died, followed by her father-in-law, Oliver, later the same year. This was followed just a year later by the death of her husband, William, of tuberculosis. And because of the rapid succession of both her father-in-law and her husband dying, that meant Sarah Winchester inherited half of the Winchester family fortune. It's estimated that at the time the fortune may have been somewhere in the ballpark of $20 million, approximately half a billion dollars in today's money. It's after this point that the legend of Sarah Winchester really grew. So the story goes that with so many members for immediate family now gone, Sarah began looking for answers. She wanted to know why so much misfortune was happening to her. She began seeking out the advice of spiritual mediums, and it was under the advice of one such medium from Boston named Adam Coons that she got the answer she'd been looking for. Coons told her that Sarah was cursed and it was the spirits of all those tens of thousands of lives that had been taken by the Winchester rifle that were out to get her. But he said there was still hope. Those same spirits would be unable to get her too if she'd only head west and begin building a house, and never stop building it. Sarah sold her home in New Haven, packed up her things, and headed across the country, waiting for a sign from the ghost of her husband to tell her where to stop. She ended up in California's Santa Clara Valley, and that's where she bought a large piece of property containing an eight-room farmhouse that she immediately set about making bigger. Sarah had 156 acres of land to play with and plenty of money to spend on it. It's estimated that the Winchester fortune was bringing in about $1,000 a day, roughly $25,000 in today's money. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sarah hired dozens of construction workers and she began giving them daily instructions on how to keep adding on to the original eight rooms. She even had her own railroad line expanded onto her property in order to keep the construction materials flowing. But with no plan and no skilled architect other than Sarah herself, the house grew into something that seems like it sprung out of a fever dream. There's of course the famous staircase that leads nowhere. There are tiny doors too small for a grown adult that open into gigantic rooms, and large doors that lead into narrow closets. There are chimneys with no corresponding fireplaces, and stained glass windows that don't look outside. 
By the time construction stopped for good, the house had 160 rooms in total, spanning 24,000 square feet. This includes 50 fireplaces, 40 staircases, 6 kitchens, 3 elevators, 10,000 windows, and more than 2,000 doors. If we are to believe the legend, then there was actually a method to all this seeming madness. Supposedly, the chaotic lack of design was an attempt to constantly confuse the spirits and keep them trapped inside. In 1906, the house stood a full seven stories tall, but the massive San Francisco earthquake that rocked the Bay Area demolished the top three stories, as well as the entire front section of the house. Sarah was trapped inside her bedroom, and when she was finally freed, she ordered construction to pick right back up by simply boarding up a large section of the house and working around it. Then on September 5, 1922, Sarah held one final seance and whatever the spirits told her remains a mystery. But one thing is known. On that night, Sarah Winchester died of heart failure at age 83. And that's the legend of Sarah Winchester in the Mystery House. But there's much more to the legend that isn't quite as well known. Parts of the story that remain underreported, and that may point to a greater truth. Before we get to that part of the story, I want to tell you about another podcast you might enjoy. Long-time listeners to my show will know that one of my favorite subjects to talk about are unexplained disappearances. Well, the Parcast Network is launching a new show that focuses exclusively on mysterious disappearances from history. It's called Gone, and every other Monday the host will take you on a deep dive into subjects from history who vanished without explanation, like Michael Rockefeller, D.B. Cooper, Nefertiti's Tomb, and the fabled Russian Amber Room. Visit Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts and search for Gone. Or visit parcast.com slash gone to start listening now. That's parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash gone to listen now. And now, back to my show. The problem we run into with a lot of the story of Sarah Winchester in the Mystery House is it's sometimes difficult to separate myth from reality. The story as told previously makes for a pretty good spooky tale. But as the saying goes, there's two sides to every story. For example, it's actually not clear whether Sarah ever really consulted any mediums who instructed her to begin building her mansion at all. As evidence that this story may not have been true, it turns out that when Sarah first moved to California, she didn't come alone. Sarah moved to San Jose with two of her sisters and their families. She had fond memories of the area after visiting there a few years earlier when William had gone to San Francisco to oversee the opening of one of Winchester's weapons manufacturing offices. So it stands to reason that the entire reason Sarah may have bought the original farmhouse and began expanding it was to make room for all the families she brought with her. But Sarah's sisters would eventually move away, leaving her all alone in the sprawling farmhouse. Yet for whatever reason, even after they left, Sarah kept adding on to the house. Sarah apparently had an interest in architecture, which, coupled with a limitless fortune and too much time in her hands, may have resulted in her sprawling, nonsensical home. Keep in mind, despite the scope of her building project, in many ways, Sarah Winchester was ahead of her time. For all the strange architectural decisions she made, she also added what would have been many technological marvels for the time, such as indoor plumbing, and even an intricate intercom system that ran throughout the entire building, that some people were even able to get working today. According to part of the lore surrounding Sarah Winchester's house is her particular fascination with the number 13. 
Throughout history, the number 13 has been associated with superstition and bad luck. According to the Winchester legend, Sarah's fascination with the number caused her to build 13 of everything. 13 bedrooms, 13 bathrooms, 13 windows in certain rooms, even adding 13 semi-precious stones to one of her prized custom Tiffany glass pieces. It was supposedly in the mansion's 13th bedroom that she died on September 5, 1922. The problem with the story is there is evidence that a lot of it came about after her death, as does much of the legend of her famous haunted house. Most people aren't even aware that Sarah Winchester owned several other homes, and that most of her later years were actually spent in her home in Atherton, many miles away. Also, there were times when she wasn't living in the mystery house when she sent all her workers home. So the story about the work never ceasing for 38 years isn't exactly true either. Even the legendary Blue Room where she supposedly conducted nightly seances seems to be more myth than fact. It turns out that particular room was her gardener's bedroom. So where did all these ghost stories and misinformation come from? Well, some researchers have traced a lot of it back to an unsigned article that appeared about her in a San Francisco newspaper after her death. Sarah Winchester was notoriously private in her affairs. And in the absence of any concrete information about what was going through her head when she was alive, it appears some imaginative reporters may have juiced up the details and created the mythology of the Winchester Mystery House. Which leaves us as people interested in the history of the Winchester Mansion in a bit of a tight spot. With so much misinformation, it can be difficult to know what to believe. One legend goes that Sarah actually left a large chunk of her fortune hidden in one of the rooms of her mansion, although to date, no one has ever come forward claiming to have found it. What's most likely is she poured most of her fortune into the mansion's construction, which would explain why her bank accounts were so empty after she died. And what are the ghosts? Well, like any good ghost story, that's up to you to make up your own mind as well. Paranormal researchers and visitors who have taken the daily tours of the mansion have reported doors that seem to close on their own, of cold spots and mysterious floating orbs. Multiple visitors to the mansion have reported the sensation of being watched. And there's one story of a tour guide who claimed to have been all alone in one of the mansion's many rooms when she heard an audible sigh, then caught a glimpse of a dark shape rushing out of the room. People have claimed to have seen the ghostly apparition of a man pushing a wheelbarrow in the mansion's basement. A few years ago, a contractor claimed he was up on a ladder in an otherwise empty room when it felt like some invisible hand first tapped him on the shoulder, then nearly shoved him completely off the ladder. He fled the mansion and refused to return for the rest of the day. Throughout everything we know and think we know, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that a very real person lived in that house and dreamed it into life. We may never know what it was that drove Sarah Winchester to build her house. Was she really haunted by ghosts and guilt? Or was she just an eccentric millionaire with an interest in architecture? Or was there another reason? Was part of her driven by a different kind of ghost? Not the sort that rattles chains and slams doors in the middle of the night. But the sort of ghost that haunts you on a deeper level. The sort of ghost that's born out of pain and loneliness. If that's the case, then we may have one tiny clue to what drove her. Whereas no one has ever found Sarah Winchester's legendary hidden fortune, 
After she died, they did find one of her personal treasures that she kept hidden away in her enormous house. After someone as wealthy as Sarah Winchester dies, one of the natural places for people to look was inside Sarah's safe. They didn't find mountains of cash or stacks of gold bars inside. Instead, they found her husband and baby daughter's obituaries and a lock of her infant daughter's hair. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. This episode was a listener request, and I really hope you enjoyed it. If you have any special requests, suggestions, or anything else you want to share, you can always reach out to me on Facebook or by emailing us at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. I also have a few new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you, Robin, Larry, and Heather for helping support the show. Just a reminder, patrons of the show get access to all sorts of goodies like stickers, t-shirts, magnets, and our patron-exclusive mini-episodes. Something else you can do to help support the show is rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. If you're not on Apple, not to worry. We're also on Stitcher, Google Play, as well as our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again, and I hope you join us again next time. <laughs>